Well, it is our privilege to take of the Lord's table this morning, and before we take of the Lord's supper together, we have the opportunity to come to the Word of God and hear what the Lord has to say to us through His Scriptures. So we will use this morning's message as a lead-in to our time of taking the Lord's table together. Thinking through the various technologies today and all that has come along, we live in a day and age where buildings are bigger, better, cars are newer, planes are better, and on and on. It seems as if that in a day and age where technology is rapidly advancing and all that is uh, produced is enriching our lives in so many different ways, that the simple things, the regular things are pushed off into the distance. The simple things are boring. We no longer take walks, we ride on our one wheels around. We no longer look in the sky and see the clouds and enjoy the rain and the beauty of the landscape. We put on virtual headsets and we fly through the skies now. The simple things of life, the normal things, the things that would be fundamental are pushed to the side for these advanced technologies, these new experiences, these new joys. But there are times where we have to be reminded to go back to just the simple things, the seemingly mundane things, the things that don't change, the things that actually enrich life and benefit us so greatly. This comes even into the church, this idea for advancing to the new technologies and the new ideas and chasing after them. Church is constantly being told to re, uh, reimagine itself, to reinvent itself with a new way of communicating the gospel, to find a new way to be an effective outreach. We need to push back old, push through old boundaries and, and reinvent so that we can reach. But it's in light of all of that, we come to a passage like this in Romans. And we see the basic, fundamental expressions of love, the simple expressions that are laid out here, the plain old fruits of the gospel. And we recognize God's work is timeless. God's work is meaningful. And it produces genuine transformation in the lives of His people. And it is interesting to me as I think about this and we come again to this rich text and I recognize we're not chasing after anything new. We're not chasing after new gimmicks. We're just rather going back to the fundamental truths of godliness. What does godly love look like? And Paul tells us here. As we're in Romans 12, we're looking at verses 9 through 21, and we're coming, as I have been pointing out to you, 30 exhortations from Paul, 30 commands, some direct, some indirect, some by implication, but in this he's laying out a pattern of behavior, a pattern of practice among the godly. 
among God's people that takes place. And if I can make one more observation from verse 9, I promise you we'll get out of verse 9 this morning and move on to 10. But if I can make one more observation in this text is that Paul moves from discussing inner life ideas to outer life ideas. Meaning he he addresses our thoughts and desires and motives of our heart. And then he also addresses external behaviors, external practices. Our love is, as thinking about the inner life practices, our love is to be without hypocrisy, verse 9. We are to hate evil. This is an internal disposition against what is unrighteous. We are to hate evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to give preference in honor, to not lag behind in diligence. We are to be fervent in spirit, rejoicing, persevering. We are to be devoted in prayer. We are not to be proud and not to be wise in our own estimation. All these are internal attitudes and internal affections that begin to shape our heart before we move out externally. But also in these passages, he talks about serving the Lord and contributing to the needs of others, and practicing hospitality, and blessing those who persecute you, and rejoicing with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. All of these are external behaviors and external practices of love. So as we come to this text, Paul moves in and out between looking at your heart and your internal disposition towards God and others, and then working externally towards your love for God and love for others externally. We can say something like this, just as a general observation again through this text, love permeates the entire being of the Christian, the inner and outer man. Our inner affections, our disposition, our heart, our attitude is shaped by love, our external activities, what we do for the caring of others is shaped by love. This is what Paul drives our attention to. Simple, fundamental, basic, and yet so transformative, so manifest of the grace of God that it separates God's children from the rest of the world. I love this as Paul lays this out. Because I recognize this, that I'm not omniscient. I'm reminded of that all the time. Not omniscient. I don't know everyone's heart. I don't know what's going on in everyone's life. But as we lay these things out, you get to evaluate yourself. You get to come under these truths. You get to do the inventory of your own heart and test your own heart against the Scriptures. And you can see clearly what the Lord is doing in your own heart and life. The Christian is marked, as we see in these texts, by a kind of love that permeates their entire being and transforms them. And he works in such a way that is completely unique to, again, worldly affections and desires. Worldliness drives the natural man to self-absorption. It's about me. It's about what I want. It's about my pleasure. It's about what I'm going to get. I'm not doing something unless it benefits me. That's worldliness. But godliness, it's about you. How is Christ in you? What can I do for you? How can I build up others? 
Godliness turns our focus from within to outward. Worldliness takes our affections from outward to inward. And Paul drives us again in this text to, to move us in this direction. And it's fitting that he does this. Because he began, if you turn back to chapter 6 of Romans, he laid out for us the working outworkings of the gospel in chapter 6. And he, in this, he described the newness of the Christian life. This is the natural outworking of the gospel. If we saw in chapter 1, verse 16, through chapter 3 and verse 20, the need for the gospel, the universal need, because all are guilty, then we saw from 3.21 through 5.21 the demonstration of the gospel of righteousness Then in chapter 6 through chapter 8, we saw the work of the gospel demonstrated and manifest in us. We come to chapter 6 and say, here's what happens in those who have embraced the gospel. He starts in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Reminder that the gospel has set us free to walk in newness of life. Go on to verses 3 and 4. Notice this. Paul says there, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, notice, so we too might walk in newness of life. God has called us out of the old life, the old practices, the old ways. He's called us into new life. We walk in newness now. We walk in a completely different way than we did before. When we were in the world, we lived for ourselves, our own passions, our own desires, our own wants, our own idols, our own pleasures. We now in Christ live for His glory. We live in newness, living for Him, not controlled by sin, not dominated by the flesh. We live for newness of life. Verse 5, as he describes this, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, notice, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So we're no longer to be slaves slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin, or set free, free to live a new life. And that's what he lays out in this chapter. He continues through this whole chapter describing this uh, freedom that we have. You can jump down to verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members as uh, as uh, your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as notice as alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He's like you have a life now dedicated to be given over entirely to righteousness. I love this one more passage there, the end of verse 17 and 18. Particularly, just notice verse 18. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So he lays out in chapter 6, we have new life. 
We're living now free. We're not living in sin anymore. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We live in newness of life. We're free to walk in righteousness. We're free to live in this new life. In fact, we are now slaves of righteousness. And then chapter 12 comes and he explains what it looks like. He tells us in chapter 6, this is what you are, free to live for the glory of God. Chapter 12, here's how it plays out. Here's what it looks like. If chapter 6 is the doctrinal foundation reminding us of what we are positionally in Christ, chapter 12 is the exact explanation for what that looks like. If chapter 6 tells us you're free to live in righteousness, chapter 12 describes for us what that righteousness looks like on a regular basis, what love looks like. I love this. Paul gives us every little detail. And what I also love is that he took multiple chapters, six more chapters, before he gave you the practical explanation. So as people accuse me of not being too, uh, having enough application in the sermon, well, just wait long enough, it will come. And here it is. We are in a section of application. And there is a lot to apply here. Now, just back in 12... I'm looking at verse 9, setting up and moving on to verse 10, but grabbing this uh, phrase that I think carries over to the, all the rest of the verses, that opening phrase, let love be without hypocrisy, that carries over into our very next verse, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Thinking about this phrase, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, And the realization that it is possible for us to have a kind of hypocritical love towards one another. We can mask our evil hearts with lying words. We can mask our true intention behind humor. We can mask our real intentions behind various social activities, smiles and hugs and other expressions of pleasantries. We can be hypocritical in our expression of love. Let me demonstrate this to you from the scriptures. And there were a couple examples that came to mind. One was in Luke 7, but I want to draw your attention to the life of Judas for a moment. Especially as we come to the Lord's table, because certainly Judas' own heart came out and was exposed on the day in which the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. And so it is fitting we may look at Judas for a moment. In fact, if you wish, turn over to John chapter 13 so I can show you this. But consider this about Judas. One author said this, Said of Judas, he is the most notorious and universally scorned of all the disciples. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. His name appears in every biblical list of apostles, except for the list in Acts 1, where it doesn't appear at all. And every time Judas is mentioned in the scripture, we also find the notation that he is the traitor. He is the most colossal failure in all of human history. He committed the most horrible, heinous act of any individual ever. He betrayed the perfect, sinless, holy Son of God for a handful of money. 
His dark story is a poignant example of the depths in which the human heart is capable of sinking. He spent three years with Jesus Christ, but for all of that time, his heart was only growing harder and more hateful towards Christ. This is the story of Judas. It's a story of hypocrisy. It's a story of self-love. It's a story in which he saw demonstrations of great power in the life of Christ. In fact, just thinking about John's Gospel in the introduction of the Gospel of John in John chapter 1, when John was describing, or 1 John chapter 1, what he was describing of what he had seen, what he beheld with his eyes, what he touched with his hands, Judas did all the same things. Judas saw Judas heard. Judas interacted with the living Christ. Judas was right there as well. And yet Judas' heart was moving far from the Lord. Here in John chapter 13, starting in verse 18, notice what's said here in this text describing Judas or Christ's own words. Says this. In fact, this is one of those instances where, where um, Jesus was warning his disciples that one was coming who would be a betrayer. Says, "I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me." John thirteen eighteen. Jesus knew that even one in his own midst was going to turn on him, who was going to betray him. The reference here is Jesus quoting Psalm 41 and verse 9. And in Psalm 41, verse 9, the psalmist writes this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus' own friend the one who shared his own resources with them, the one who cared for him, the one who was intimately involved in his life, that one turned on him. Psalm 55, just listen, verses 12 through 14, describing the betrayal of Christ by his own friend is this, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend who has had sweet fellowship, or we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. It was not one who was distant who turned on Christ. It was one who was near. It was his own friend. Judas, the co-laborer in ministry. Judas, the one who is in the inner circle of Christ. Judas, who is the one listening to the direct instruction from Christ, who from the outside would have appeared to be a dear friend. But inwardly, he was anything but. His heart wasn't loyal. His heart wasn't dedicated to Christ. What was Judas's problem? Well, back to chapter 12 of John. Notice back at chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. 
John actually gives us insight into what what was feeling Judas's betrayal. Notice, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now we'll just stop for a second. The setting is Jesus is now here with Mary, with Martha, with Lazarus. They were there rejoicing over Lazarus' resurrection, throwing basically a celebration for Christ for this miraculous event. Now verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Notice, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him. Notice just how John sets this all up. This is his own friend, who is intending to betray him, says, verse 5, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Here was the heart of Judas in this. This money was taken, or this perfume was used in a wasteful way. That's what Judas had determined. Determined that this was a waste There were better ways to use this money, better ways than to pour it out on Christ. Notice, I love John's, gives us the insight of why. Verse 6, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. What was the work going on in Judas's heart? Well, he was consumed with greed. Consumed. He was living a life of hypocrisy. He was living a life of sordid gain. He was living a private life, a two-faced life, a hypocritical life where he was pretending to follow Christ, love Christ, while privately living for personal ambition and greed desiring to take money. And he used his particular role as the one who managed the money for the disciples to take money out for himself. This account here, Luke 12, becomes the tipping point. The tipping point for Judas where he now turns his attention away and he begins to come up with a plan to deceive and to turn Christ over. His secret life of shame was coming to an end. The handwriting was on the wall. Now let's turn over to Matthew 26. I want to pick up this account from Matthew's vantage point in Matthew chapter 26. What I'm giving you is nothing new in regards to the story. You know these particular details as you have listened to the gospel What you need to understand, though, is that at the moment, as this was being unfolded, the disciples didn't know what was going on. The disciples didn't understand what was taking place in Judas' heart. Jesus certainly understood and warned, warned all the disciples that there was a betrayer in their midst. 
He warned all of their disciples one was going to, to turn on him. Judas had prepared this very plot back in Matthew 26 and verse 1. It says in there, when Judas or Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they're saying not during the festival. They desired They wanted this opportunity to take uh, the uh, Christ and kill him. Verse 14 through 19, then is Judas's bargain. Verse uh, Matthew 26, and one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? Judas, again, is looking for one more payday, one last payday. Again, this is... Less than you know, six days, so it's probably about three days later from the time in which that event occurred where he was rebuking the other disciples and, and the situation. He was rebuking Mary for pouring out that costly perfume. Now, a few days later, he is selling Christ for a few pieces of silver. He is, in essence, violating everything that we have learned in Romans 12, 9 through 10. He is hypocritical, only thinking about himself, consumed by greed. He is not abhorring evil. He's engaging in evil in his own heart and practices. He is not loving what is good, filled with corruption, not devoted to brotherly love. All of this, again, we know all this what struck me particularly for why our introduction, verse 47 through 50. After Judas was sent out, he goes and gets the Roman authorities. He brings the Roman authorities to Jesus to capture Jesus. And notice in verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas One of the twelve came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. It's amazing here because this is going to be the sign of betrayal. Judas would walk up, find Christ, and show him brotherly affection. He would kiss him. Kiss him on the cheek. Verse 49, immediately immediately Judas went up to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. What is stunning in all of this is that in Judas's Hypocrisy in his self-love and his unrighteous heart and his greedy heart. He goes up to Christ and betrays Christ with a natural sign of affection. A hypocritical affection. 
I say all that to say this. We can turn now to Romans chapter 12. It is easy, could be easy, to demonstrate a hypocritical affection. A hypocritical love. The one who's demonstrated a hypocritical love in the most significant way was Judas, who betrayed our very Lord with a kiss on the cheek. But Paul here, in Romans 12 and verse 10, tells us, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. What Judas betrayed, the believer is to practice Genuinely. What Judas practiced in evil and in hypocrisy, the believer practices in genuine love and in godliness. So the question for us then is, what is a genuine expression of godly affection? That's what we want to draw our attention to in the remaining moments we have left this morning. The next command that Paul gives us in this verse is this. Seek to demonstrate natural love. Seek to demonstrate natural love. This is the fourth exhortation that Paul gives. As you see in the text, be devoted to one another. You may see in your particular text, the word be there is in italics. is because it is implied. It isn't directly stated. Just like verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy is implied by the text. So also here, verse 10, this first exhortation in verse 10 is implied. You have to supply the to be verb. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Paul is giving an idea here to express what it looks like for natural Christian affection. Literally, the first word there, brotherly love, is the word Philadelphia. This word, again, is translated as love of the brethren. I find it interesting that out of the five times it's used in the New Testament, three times it is supplemented also by the word agape. The verbal form, agapao, to love. Genuinely loving one another, we exercise brotherly love. Let me show you. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 19, the first time that this is used. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 4 9 says this. Now, as to the love of the brethren, Philadelphia... You have no need for anyone to write to you. Why? For you yourselves are taught by God to agapao one another, to love one another. Selflessly, sacrificially, you love one another, and it is the demonstration of your brotherly love. What Paul is writing here is that out of an active, selfless care for others, we are expressing brotherly love. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. The word comes out again there. 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. <clears throat> Paul, here, Peter writes this, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, notice, for a sincere love of the brethren, Philadelphia, 
fervently agapao, one another from the heart. Fervently love one another from the heart. Again, the expression of brotherly love, the natural brotherly love demonstrated flows out of one who is selflessly, sacrificially caring for others. Because you have purity, you have purified your souls, the sincere love of the brethren, fervently give yourself to caring for one another from the heart. Loving. This word, again, we are to love the brethren. Same thing is also brought out in Second Peter 1, verse 7. In your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, agapao, love. The terms are tied together. Now turn back to Romans here and look at the modifying word to this word brotherly love. We are to love one another, to have a brotherly love. And then he adds a second word, philostorges, which means a, a love of tender affection. In fact, it is implied here to be expressed with a specific expression of affection. So it is a brotherly love that is fervent, fervently expressed. Maybe we can... Listen to a couple of translations, the way different translations translate this verse. Notice the ESV. The ESV translate like, translates this verse like this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Or the King James. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. The idea is this, that we have such a care for one another because our regular selfless sacrifice for one another that we demonstrate natural affection. Natural affection and care. Familial kind of affection. The kind of affection that demonstrates I care for you, I want your best interests. I thinking about one of my favorite observations of Saving Grace Bible Church over the years. It happened during the COVID years in 2020. Of course, everyone was hypersensitive of all personal activity in the church being around each other. And uh, as we were gathered and operating during those years, or during that year, and, and the ministry was going forth, Certainly everyone's watching the ministry as people would you know, head out of the sanctuary and head to their cars. And, and of course, uh, what would happen is the church would naturally care for one another. And apparently there was a bunch of hugging out in the parking lot. And of course, you know, we're supposed to be social distance and having masks on to keep up with, you know, everybody else. But our people are out hugging in the parking lot. And somebody had observed this. That's the hugging church. It's my favorite expression. We will take that. This is the idea that Paul is laying out here in Romans 12, verse 10. Be brotherly, be devoted in brotherly love with affection, natural affection. I love this idea of brotherly love and affectionate love of family. Just think about the dynamics of family. We can step on one another's toes. We know everyone's strengths and weaknesses. 
I mean, I literally just met with uh, my uncle yesterday. He was in town and we were talking. He pastors up in New Hampshire. And he said to me as we were sitting there, I still remember you as the snotty-nosed you know, teenager. I'm like, well, I would have put myself as snotty-nosed young kid, but not teenager. But anyways, in his mind, I was still young, immature, needing help. And here we are today. That's family. We know our strengths. We know one another's weaknesses. I love to think about it as family. I could pick on my little brother. That's what I get to do. No one else can, but I get to pick on my little brother. It's family. It's my privilege as an older brother to be able to mock him, pick on him, point out his flaws as he returns the favor back. But whenever he has a need, who's the first one he's calling is me and I'm caring for the need. Whatever, whatever he has any burden, I'm right there to care for it. Even though he's sinned against me and I've sinned against him. Even though he's shown weakness and I've shown weakness. No matter what goes on in life, they're still going back to lovingly care. They've seen us at the ugliest, the lowliest, the worst, the most immature. And yet, they've also expressed the greatest love, the greatest devotion, the greatest loyalty. So I love this particular expression that Paul is laying out here. Be devoted to one another in brotherly affection because it demonstrates a kind of, mature, a kind of love that perseveres through all the seasons. And I thought through this, what would this look like? Let me give you, I think, three ways at least that this expression of brotherly affection would be demonstrated. This and again, it's translated devotion here. Uh, I, I like the idea of the ESV better. This this fervent expression, fervent affectionate expression of brotherly love. How is it demonstrated? Well, at least three ways. First, we could say it's expressed on an ideological level, like this: we have shared commitments, shared values, shared aspirations. We all have the same gospel commitments, the same desire to glorify God, the same desire to see His righteousness on display, the same desire to see His kingdom come, to see Christ ruling. We have these same ideological convictions that support us and we minister to one another with these ideologies, these convictions, these doctrines. We're devoted to one another around truth ministering truth to one another, speaking truth to one another. There is a loving devotion around what is right. Secondly, it is expressed on a relational level. There is a loyalty, a dedication, a commitment. I'm loyal to you. I want to see your best. I'm supporting you. Yeah, you've fallen. I've fallen at times. We've fallen short. We've sinned against each other, but we reconcile. We don't hold on to wrongs. We don't keep them and we don't keep a record of them. We are quickly forgiving, showing mercy, seeking reconciliation, seeking repentance, not holding on to our bitter, stubborn sins, but seeking to repent of them, not holding those sins over somebody's head as if they have to atone for them. We are loyal in seeking to demonstrate mercy and forgiveness. So there is a brotherly love on that level of loyalty, support, and encouraging. But then the third level of this kind of brotherly, affectionate love is demonstrated on a physical level. And I tell you, this is hard for me to say. But it is on natural affection. Just as there's a 
kiss on the cheek, a hug, a holy handshake, whatever normal brotherly familial affection that would be demonstrated, this would be demonstrated here. Natural love, a brotherly love, is a natural, pure affection for one another, just like you would have care for your own siblings, your own family. I love it in this context because, again, right after saying, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, the very next statement, be devoted fervently in brotherly love. That is, we're not seeking a sensual affection. We're not seeking to harm one another. We're not seeking to take advantage of anyone. We're seeking to demonstrate loyalty, love, appreciation, dedication. I mean, I was thinking about this because remember back in John 13, in verse 23, John describes himself at the Lord's Supper sitting there with the disciples. How does he describe himself in that moment? He says this, there was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Here was John describing himself as I'm laying back on Jesus' chest. A brotherly affection. A natural love. So what? Paul drives us to is this awareness this is the body of Christ there's such a care such a unity such a joy around the truth such a commitment to purity and righteousness and holiness such a commitment to the kingdom activities that natural fervent expression of love is manifest just as you would care for your own siblings, you would care for your own family, you would care for your own children, so you are caring for one another in the same way as the family of God. And I have run out of time, but I have one more point. I'm going to save it for next week. So we're going to add on to next week. The next one is to give way to honor others. Give way in honoring others. And we'll pick up on that next week, but... Let me just close with this thought from Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this in, in talking about love and the outpouring and affection of love. He says this. He says, I dislike much the Christianity that makes a man feel if I go to heaven, it is all I care for. He says, Why? You are like a German stove that I found in a room of a hotel the other day. A kind of stove that required all the wood they could bring up merely to warm itself. And then all the heat went up the chimney. And we sat around it to make it warm, but scarcely a particle of heat came forth from it to us. Too many need all the religion they can get to cheer their own hearts and their poor families and neighbors sit shivering in the cold of ungodliness. Be like those well-constructed stoves of our own houses which send out all the heat into the room. Send out the heat of piety into your house and let all the neighbors participate in the blessing. I love that. Genuine Godly righteousness permeating forth an active love for others 
shows the demonstration of affection for all. Let's say it like this. We love one another by calling one another to righteousness and modeling righteousness to one another. And it carries out not only in our personal sacrifices, but our normal and natural affection for one another. 